Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Jen Agbobli. Jen, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Jennifer Agbobli. I'm a program uh, manager for our uh, early career and internship uh, program at Kindle. Super stoked to be on your podcast for the second time. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I think I'm I'm excited to dive into your role because last time you were just transitioning over from IBM to Kindrel. Um, so can you tell us what are some of the differences uh, between what your expectations were and the reality uh, getting into a talent role? Ooh, that's such a very good question. Um, my expectations, I expected growth. Um, and that's mostly because of Kindle as a company that is building, not necessarily from the ground up. We already had a solid foundation of clients that we worked with. Um, the growth really comes with the partnerships that Kindle can undertake in terms of the service providers and the technology companies that we can partner with. Um, so that kind of broadens the scope of the company. So I expected growth just in terms of the company building itself, it's positioning itself in the market and what it meant also internally for employees um, was just a lot of expansion of their own capabilities, a lot of learning. Um, so that's what I expected. And that did become true. I think that is what um, th that is for sure. Something that I expected was the, the learning curves and the embracing the change. Not only did I change uh, business areas, right? Moving from analytics to, um, to to talent, but I also moved from two different companies, from a uh, different service models, different uh, models in terms of what the businesses do overall. So that was also a change. And the, the third aspect really is what surprised me is just the people. <laughs> and quite frankly, it's the reason why I stayed and the reason why I enjoy being at Kindle so much is with that mission of building a new company comes a lot of energy, but also a lot of, I would say, efficiency in doing so. Um, we're looking to build, but we're looking to build fast and everyone is hungry to help and everyone is hungry to learn. So I think that it, that to me was the, the surprising part of it is just how the environment due to the nature of what we need to do for the mission of the company is conducive to creativity, to just great, great advancement. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor at Verity. Marketing is a thankless task. You go through all the trouble of setting up your campaigns, perfecting your messaging, and targeting your customers. But when it comes to revenue, who gets all the credit? That's right, sales. Well, it doesn't need to be this way. Adverity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily monitor performance and link it to actual revenue in your company. What's more, the advanced analytics module will also give you predictive insights into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. Again, that's info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. And now, back to the podcast. I know what you mean because 
I have spent the last year at DirecTV, and most of that has been post a divestiture from AT&T. So this is a new company um, that was previously under this much larger company. And as you could expect, when you break off from like a really large company, you have the you have new abilities to make decisions that you didn't have before because there was other corporate rules, for lack of a better term, that kind of supersede or also apply to everything that you're doing. So it's almost like you have two sets of rules. And then you break off and it's kind of just like, how do you, how do you really want to run this much smaller ship? And there's just much tighter decision-making cycles because there's fewer people. And it's a much more empowering environment for people. I think it's especially good if you are slightly seasoned to join this kind of a organization because it's it, there's a lot of work. I'm sure you can attest to that too. When, whenever you know a, a business is you know kind of reinventing itself or just kind of growing or in that medium size or even a large size, but it's kind of new, there's just tons and tons of work that has to hap- t- that has to be done, and it's kind of like all hands on deck, kind of like what you were saying. Totally. And, you know, I, I I had no idea our paths were this similar at this stage. It's kind of funny how that happened. But yeah, I, I agree with you on defining the future now at this, as this new entity and having control over that. It's incredibly, incredibly rewarding. But yes, although those uh, smaller entities or those smaller companies um, start as small, the, the benefit and the reason why maybe these spins and diversity diversities happen is we're looking towards a new area of the market that they like to conquer, right? We're looking at new business to be, um, to be acquired or a new business to be found in the marketplace. You have to set up for that future success, right? So it's not just about the current state and what needs to happen for the company to function, but it's also about setting up the company for success in the future. And that takes a lot of creativity and it takes a lot of, um, a lot of research at the same time, you need to be nimble and make decisions fast. And to your point of having more seasoned employees, I think you need both. Um, I, I think you need seasoned employees, but you also need new perspectives. And for me coming from an earlier career focus, I really see the infusion of creativity, of diversity of thought that different um, experience groups bring to the picture. So I definitely think a mix is important. So you have the more established um, professionals that provide kind of the broad lines and provide structure and that can really run day one and make things happen. But also you need that infusion of innovation and that is done through just different perspectives, whether that be diversity in all of its forms, really, whether it's in experience, in uh, career um, stage, in backgrounds, in skills, in all its forms, really. That's, That's very powerful. So you're talking about establishing a vision for the company, but you're not talking from a sales perspective. You're talking from a talent perspective, right? Correct. Yes, that is my focus. But I will say, as I 
draft that vision, it's very much so a collaborative process. So we are a services company, but really our people are at the center of everything we do to deliver value to the client. So when I think about what success looks like for an early career professional, I ought to ask our sales leaders. I ought to ask our data science leaders. I ought to ask every single um, leaders and in different functions, what does that success look like? What is it that I'm not thinking about? Um, what is it that we need to bring into the company? But also what is it that we're missing so that we can match that talent to our mission? So what, you know, however much you can share, like what is your vision and, and how are you taking steps to see it through? The vision really is, and maybe you've heard this in on LinkedIn or through our different channels, and our CMO, Maria Winans, often speaks to this, is to be the employer of choice. And for Kindrel to become the employer of choice, so many things have to happen. But where I think we really have a strong positioning is our culture. Um, the level of expertise and the ease of access that any professional really in our in our company um, has access to is just mind blowing. The resources that are available for each individual to seek their own growth, to seek their own path and to provide value, it's to me mind blowing. The vision really is to become the employer of choice and the way we do that is through our culture, number one, it's through our mission and the way we deliver for our client, number two, but it's also operationally how we function internally and how we think intentionally about skills building, about career pathing, about our culture. Um, it, it, it's a mix of those elements, but it's strongly driven by our culture. So let me give you a situation. Um, I have a friend who had a really tough experience with his first job because there was very few resources to train uh, and and improve your skills as as an entry-level employee and he was always asking for feedback but nobody really had the time to properly mentor him so as you can imagine this is this is a very difficult environment because you you don't get that innovation that you were talking about when you bring in new creative ideas so aside from, you know, just telling them, like, go find random courses, like, what would you recommend to that company to fix this issue? Well, I'll start with the with the with your friend and then we can talk about the company because it's much more difficult to, to change a company. And if that's their culture, that's even more difficult. I mean, we, we are lucky to have almost the opposite where we do understand that because of how big the mission is ahead of us, we have to empower our employees. And we do that through various channels, including support when it comes to internal resources for learning. But for someone in that situation, if I were in their shoes, I would look around, and I know sometimes this is difficult, especially in this hybrid environment, but I would look for someone who cares about learning, someone who's hosted an event, or a leader who's spoken about certification and make that person an ally and reach out and say, 
you know, a bit like you would if you were even external looking for direction, look for someone who is aligned to your values and to your growth mindset. Reach out to that person and say, hey, I would love to learn about X. I'm not seeing any resources internally. How do you recommend I find the support I need? And that person, most likely, if they're aligned value-wise, they probably have started an effort somewhere or have visibility, especially if you go to a more senior um, employee, into programs that you just might not have visibility into. That is something that happens um, at times that it might not be a broad focus for the company, but there are pilots somewhere starting. So that would be my first recommendation um, when someone is stuck and needing to grow and needing to learn, but can't find the resources internally. And an, and a follow-up question, how do you change the culture of a company for the better? Wow, incredible question and such a, a tall, tall order. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and the reason why I, I said that is, again, we are so lucky to have a great foundation and that growth mindset is part of our DNA. Um, but if you are in a position where you need to change the culture. Again, I really believe in the top-down and the bottom-up approach, <laughs> truly. And I also believe in any culture, is in this, it really is should be in the support of our mission. It's great on its own. It's important on its own. It affects retention. It affects talent attraction. It affects so many aspects of business. But at the, at the end of the day, a good culture supports the bottom line. And good leadership identifies that and recognize that, recognizes that. Um, so in changing the culture, the, the approach I just discovered, I just um, talked about for your friend is the almost the bottom-up approach, right? You find other people that are interested in the things you're interested in or that share that care for that mission of improving the culture or certain aspects of the culture. But the top-down approach is programmatic and means you're embedding cultural change into your KPIs, into business performance, into management performance. And that definitely takes bigger programs. Um, but the bottom-up approach is a good way to start and make that need heard by the company and by the leadership and tying those outcomes, those cultural outcomes to the bottom line, I think is always a good proposition <laughs> and a good way to, to turn things around. And I will say, you know, there is power in numbers and that bottom up approach is the way to start. But I will say there are scenarios in which you might not necessarily want to die on that hill and do something else with your time. I, this is a harsh reality, right? Um, sometimes if you have a small group, it's difficult to achieve. And I've been in positions like that in the past where sometimes the best decision is to just go and find that culture or find a place where there is people are receptive to those changes and to that innovation to their culture. Um, so you mentioned something earlier that it's important to hire for diversity of thought. So I'm curious, how do you hire for that? A good approach is to look at 
the diversities of the places you go to hire. And that can be regional, right? Are you going to different regions within your country or are you going globally um, to hire, number one? Number two, what kind of institutions are you going to to hire? Are they all well-established or are some of them newer um, with programs that might be different from a traditional school and do you value those programs right do you do you stand behind the 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 value that they provide and the difference that they might provide in terms of skills in terms of learning um in terms of training from more established institutions um and three i would say is also working on your internal workforce to be diverse because that also attracts diverse talent. So as talent myself, if I'm going to any organization, the first thing I'm going to do is to look for people, one, that look like me, or two, that have a similar part, a path for me. If I'm looking at a company and no one looks like me there, or they, I can't find someone with a similar path or a similar interest, I'm not going there. So it's an external but also internal approach um, first, you want to target broadly to make sure you're inclusive of um, diversity regionally, diversity in the kind of institutions you, you hire from and their profiles as institutions. And then internally, you want to work for, you want to work towards great diversity at all levels so, you, so that you can attract diverse talent as well. So I, I was also curious about another thing you, you said around programming the cultural change into the KPIs. Do you have any broad examples of what that would look like? Yes. So the, the KPIs really, there are various levels that you can embed them. There is hiring, of course. You can set goals for your uh, hiring teams and for your hiring managers to, again, like I said, look for diversity, right? So if one year, we only went to schools in one region where next year we're defining KPIs and saying we want um, regional um, diversity and put numbers against it, right? If we went to five schools last year and they were all in one region, well, let's go to 15 schools and let's spread them throughout the country and put measurements against that. Um, that that's one way to approach it. Um, there's also incentives that can be can be built in uh, from and this is the less maybe obvious part of um, building good diversity is training right making sure managers have an incentive to complete training that either fight bias make them more aware of how to maintain and develop a diverse uh, workforce makes them more aware and conscientious of uh, cultural differences, which of course in the in in the end helps with uh, retention, helps with um, just human the human factor and how people interact in the company. It helps with a sense of belonging. But that onus is on senior um, senior level uh, folks in the company to make that amended, right? We are going to have 100% of our managers complete these key trainings that help with our diversity outcomes, that help with our retention, and also help with our attraction, right? So that those are two 
ways that you can embed KPIs into into um, improving diversity outcomes. Mm-hmm. But by the way, I mean, you can take that model and take it into any function you can think of, right? You can take it into finance and let's say you're a company that supports um, that supports nonprofits as a lot of big enterprises often do. And let's say you typically annually contribute, I don't know, X amount to a set of a, uh, a set of nonprofits. Well, you can set a KPI the next year and say we want uh, 2x um, the amount that went out last year to minority-owned companies or women-owned companies, right? These are very clear targets that you can set that really you're putting your money where your mouth is um, in that instance in particular. Any function you can think of, you can apply KPIs to to increase diversity outcomes. But hiring, I think, is a good place to start. How would you recommend somebody who's totally remote get a mentor? Well, this is such an important topic. And I'll speak about what I know for a little bit and then go into maybe a scenario that's completely different. So for our program, which this was the first year, 2022, that we obviously being in existence for not that long of a time that we ran our first uh, internship program. And this is something that we've gotten feedback on that really reinforced the idea that there are things in business that a remote environment is very good for. And then there are things in business that an in-person environment is very good for. And mentorship is one where in-person environment is ideal. And I say that because we've heard from our interns this year and the feedback was, I can't believe how much access we had to just great talent at all levels. And we really didn't feel the hierarchy to my, to my earlier point, that really is the culture, but that kind of access is much, much difficult when you're remote. We've seen literally interns run into our CEO this time around or run into senior level management and being able to ask them questions live you don't get that opportunity if you're not in the room, right? You don't get that opportunity if you're remote. So I will say I would make a case for companies as you're onboarding, create spaces or create events that allow for that in-person touch at some point in the onboarding experience, right? Even if you're getting your laptop remote, at some point within a month of you joining, you should be at least meeting your team in person, flying to see them or flying to see the extended team. Or if there is an event, making sure you're included in that, especially if it's an event that will give you exposure to um, a broad picture of what the business does and different functions and give your perspective into how your team relates to the bigger picture. I think that's really what gets lost in translation in a remote environment. You'll get very good at your work and your work that the team does, your immediate team, but you will lose that transparency across the rest of the business. So that would be my little nugget of advice there. If and when you are in a remote environment and that is not an option, I will still recommend to, you know, LinkedIn is such a powerful tool for research these days. You can look up a title within your company based on your interests or say you're really interested in certification, but you also need 
guidance around certification, right? Let's say you're interested in AWS certification, but there are other options, but you're not quite sure and you want an experienced hire to guide you. Well, look up within your company titles that would be relevant, whether that be uh, a software engineer, whether that be a data scientist, and reach out to them or someone even more senior and reach out to them and say, hey, I am new to the company. I've seen you've maybe had um, um, certifications in the past. I was just curious, what does the company value? What would serve me well as I seek to grow uh, and bring value here? So that's like the external channel if really nothing <laughs> exists. That's always a good way, good way to go. But ideally within your team also, you should be able to ask directly and say, hey, you know, I'm looking for mentorship in these specific areas. Do you know anyone, right? Hopefully there's someone in your team that you can ask for. Uh, it's essentially a referral. And that usually goes very well because someone can vouch for you and say, well, this person is new on our team. They're looking for this and that. And it's a good way to connect people. If that's not an option, then default to the to the LinkedIn <laughs> search. That would be my, my approach. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. And one follow-up, so when you're reaching out to them, let's say you find them on LinkedIn, are you going to message them on LinkedIn or would you take that actually to the work chat and just message them on Teams or Slack? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, yeah, I would do it through the work channels, whether it's an email, direct or Teams. If you have a good way to find uh, internally job roles and different teams that are not necessarily, if you have visibility into that internally, then use those channels only. And if you don't have visibility or a reference, someone who can refer you internally, should you go to those external channels like LinkedIn? Yeah, I like LinkedIn. I think that it's a really good medium between um, professional and personal. So I feel comfortable connecting with everybody in my professional life on LinkedIn and it it feels slight like a step towards personal but not you know texting it's business casual I would say like the overall tone of LinkedIn it's not so buttoned up that you feel um the extreme formality but at the same time there is an acknowledgement or a an awareness that this is still a professional environment um, at the same time. But people are not afraid to show their authenticity, their passions, um, in addition to their skills and to their the career outcomes they're driving towards, which to me, I like that blend for sure. Yeah, and, and as somebody in this industry, can you give any advice on LinkedIn and how one should approach their profile and what they post, what they like? What's your advice there? I think being in alignment with your desired outcome is the best thing you can do. So take time and think to yourself, why is LinkedIn of value to you? Is it purely because you're looking for a job? Is it because you want to build a network? And if so, what are the conversations? Um, what conversations are you seeking in, on LinkedIn? And that will kind of orient who you connect with and the, the, the content you interact with. I tend to go, I'm not saying be narrow in your, in your engagement, only focus on select topics. You might need to, depending on your career stage and what outcomes you're driving towards. But I think narrowing it down overall really helps because there's a lot of content 
um, on LinkedIn, really defining what interests you and what spheres of conversations you want to be part of and make sure you start engaging. That's the easiest thing you can do. And sometimes even when I don't have time, that's what I do is I engage in conversation around topics that are interesting to me. Um, that's the least you can do until you can post more. And I know you do quite a bit of that, Alex, which I love. Um, it's, it, it's tough to maintain that consistency and really build your voice on LinkedIn. But the least you can do is interact with the professionals you want to engage with or the topics or the, the spheres of conversations that you value. From a hiring perspective, what's going to raise a red flag? What should people avoid? And or conversely, what are you looking for? Are you looking for people to post about their achievements? You know, what is it that you want to see? So I will say um, a lot of our, this is, this would be a good question for our hiring managers for sure. I'm, I'm curious what they would think about it as you're asking that question. Uh, personally, I really am looking for, as I'm hiring people for a professional highlight reel, right? It, it, what I'm interested in really is your, your skill sets. That's going to determine um, our interests or not. It's really about your education. It's really about your skills. Um, but also your interests. I mean, we do want to see some level of authenticity because we are in a competitive market, right? So a, a lot of folks have the skills, but really sometimes what makes the difference is um, how you express what you want out of your career, what you want out of your next step, right? Things that show more specifically the direction you're going into or indicators that were the good, a good company or a good match for you. So if you mention a growth mindset or mention um, uh, working in unstructured environments and thriving in that and being eager to learn and exploring, like all those data points are important to employers because then they can just go beyond the skill set and look at the cultural match, the cultural match. But I, that to me would be the extent of it. I wouldn't go too much into personal stuff, but that's me. I'm not saying that other uh, HR people or other folks don't do it. Um, I'm not saying that it couldn't hurt you if you were to share maybe too personal of um, information or things that are a bit contradictory. I would err on the set on the safe side, but showing through as much authenticity as possible. I know that's maybe a bit, a bit vague, but um, share what you care about and share what you know how to do well. <laughs> I like that. You're talking about like having an intention. If you're like, and, and I completely agree, and that's how I see every single like interaction I have on LinkedIn is has an intention. It's not just like scrolling through, liking a bunch of posts because the way LinkedIn is structured every like on LinkedIn would equal a share on Facebook or a retweet on Twitter because it will, it will show up on everybody's feed that you liked it. So the um, every interaction just has more weight on LinkedIn. And I think that's the core of it, of, of kind of what I was asking about. It's like, you have to, you have to be uh, mindful of, what you put on and make sure that it's a it's an authentic representation of you but with the we said business casual right but with the like you said the awareness that you know there are others in the room watching 
And it's not just your profile and the things you've curated, you know, to make yourself look perfect for the employer, but it's also your activity. And that's a good point. Um, but again, you, you, you never know who's watching here. You have a good point there and you want to keep it as authentic, but appealing and non-damaging <laughs> as possible. Yeah. It really is the new resume. That's the first thing people see. And it's certainly more fun to scroll through than a resume. So I'm sure hiring managers would prefer it. Yeah, but I don't, I can't say how many, maybe I shouldn't speak to that, but I don't know how many hiring managers actually follow activity that closely mm-hmm. pre-hire. Maybe I, I, I actually don't know. So I'll say I don't know. Maybe some do really pay close attention to that. And either way, let's, you know, I, I would recommend being on the safe side of mm-hmm engagement and interactions on LinkedIn and making sure nothing in your activities compromising your chances of getting an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I heard a stat that the average resume is only read for like seven seconds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you got to really make sure everything pops. Yes. Yes. And yes. I mean, we spoke, we spoke about, um, video before and how it's a preferred format you know and before I before I was in a talent role and before I got to collaborate with HR and talent teams I used to think oh my god I wonder what to you know as a as a um, as a candidate in previous experiences I used to think oh my god I wonder what takes so much time like why is the hiring process so lengthy and it feels like you're applying forever and it's so difficult to find opportunities but when you have an insider look, the reality of those HR and talent teams are just like the reality of any teams. The amount of information, I'm sure yourself as well, on a daily basis that comes at you through email, teams, uh, Yammer, <laughs> what, right? Like any channel that modern enterprises use is unreal. And you have to decipher through all of that engage with people, respond to people in a timely manner, but also do your job. If that's recruiting, then you're actually recruiting. Or if you're a visualization expert, you're actually building your dashboard, but that's on the side. And in addition to your, your, all these communications that need to happen and sometime in real time. And then of course, on the side, you have your mom and your dad reaching out and saying, hey, why haven't, haven't, haven't I heard from you in X amount of time? What, you know, it's just the reality of how much information we're processing. And I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. Um, that creates that need for bite-sized digestible information. Like we've talked about, it's, video is just ideal, but I don't think we're there yet in terms of submitting a video <laughs> resume or maybe that's just the interview that feels in that need. But in terms of resume building is get to the point as soon as possible, provide that value prop or why this company really should consider you as high up on that page as possible. <laughs> that's my recommendation. Call out the, call it out. The, the, the things that, make you stand out, but also make you a good candidate or a great candidate for that company. Call that out very early on that resume. Yeah. And speaking of which, when, when somebody's building that, building their resume and they're looking for an internship, but let's say they don't know what they want. 
they don't know they maybe they know they want a career they know they want a nine to five something you know stable that that they can um excel at and grow out of and into new roles right they just want a starting point what what do you recommend you know where where do you start when you don't know what kind of career you want you have to do a lot of research when you don't know what you want and you have at least my recommendation is to proceed by elimination and you have a couple things to decide on um at the very least, you have a, or you should have an understanding of what you are good at, what, what your foundational skills are. And if you're in college looking at an internship, you've at least had a couple of years of college experience under your belt and classroom experience under your belt. And you've known um, specific classes that resonated with you where you had good grades, where the skill set or at least the, uh, the process of understanding a select topic is arising. So I would start there. Just look at, do a quick inventory of your strengths. Like what classes have I really enjoyed? What kind of skills have I uh, shown, have I shown a proficiency in? And then start there and then look at, okay, in the marketplace, what are the the, uh, job families or the kind of companies that value those skills? That's always a good way to approach it. So for myself, for example, I knew that I wasn't the most interested in finance. Finance classes bored me to naps. I did not take naps in finance classes, but I I, I really just did not have an interest, nor did I do very well in those classes. So I had to look at, okay, what are the other classes where I did well and where do I find an interest? And then I sometimes I also recommend engaging your professors in those classes where you're doing well and where you really have an interest and say, hey, where could this lead me? Right. If you're taking just a very general business class and you're doing well, just ask them, where could this lead me? Could They might suggest consulting. They might suggest something else. But that's always a good approach is start with yourself and your strengths, then go out to your network. So your professors is part of it. Sometimes it could be your parents. Right. They might have insight. And then really work through your close relatives and people that are easily accessible to you. And I will <laughs> back to LinkedIn. That's going to be um, the last frontier where you're asking experienced hires how they found maybe their passions or how they uh, pursued a certain career path. Maybe they've uh, done well in the same kind of classes or maybe they've gone to the same schools and you have that in common. But the question mark of, what kind of roles, what kind of companies they can inform you. And then one more thing I'll add to that is, and I, I think generationally that's a big difference I'm seeing is that just the importance of culture. What is the lived-in culture? Like I mentioned before, that's something I always look for is, is this going to be a good match for me from a skills perspective, from a career perspective, but am I going to be in a good environment that helps me thrive? And the only way to find that out is to ask people who work there. That's really the way to go. Yeah, I completely agree. I have a I have another question around hiring, and that's around companies who give personality tests or other skills-based entry tests to get the role or even logic tests. What is your, you know, what what's your perspective on that should companies be doing that um, would you recommend that so 
I don't know that I have a strong perspective on it. Companies have good reasons to to usually employ those methods. Is they're looking for one more la- layer of vetting um, for for those potential hires or for those employees, or they have specific outcomes that they're driving towards, and those tests help them measure fitness or compatibility. Um, personally, I haven't really enjoyed them being on the, on the, um, other side of the process on the candidate side. Personally, it's not something we employ currently. Um, can't say we will, can't say we won't, but personally, I'm not, I don't have strong opinions against it. Um, if they don't feel right, right? Like if, if it just doesn't feel right, if it feels invasive or it feels like not relevant to the candidate, they can make their decision at that point. I agree that there's definitely certain instances, especially in technical roles, where it just makes the process so much easier. And, you know, for some of these higher, highly paid roles, it, if you didn't have any sort of test involved for like a very technical job, you would probably have people who would try to to fake it because even like a couple months salary would be like phenomenal. So I, I see that as like kind of like almost a security measure. Yeah. I mean, skills testing th- that I'm aligned with, I think what had me hesitate a little bit is personality testing. I think that's a, a bit different, but the, the outcome, sometimes the outcome is, um, is to, to seek diversity within a team, right? Like if you have someone who's very extroverted, someone who's very introverted, et cetera, et cetera, to create that balance. I mean, as long as the outcome is and the intent is is good, I, I don't really have a problem with it. Yeah, skills testing, you will find a lot of that in tech with a lot of uh, coding exercises or um, and others. So that's prevalent. And yeah, to your point, I think that's just what needs to be done to, to vet out um, some candidates and find the right candidates for the job. But personality testing, that one, because it's not 100% accurate. I mean, the intent behind it is really, again, to to find a good fit from not necessarily a skills perspective, but more maybe a cultural perspective or uh, a behavioral perspective. But humans are so much more complex than I find oftentimes what those tests can reveal. We're so much more matrix and we have so much more, much more depth than those big categories that someone came up with that to me, it doesn't seem the most effective method. It's a good maybe compass or a good tool, um, but definitely not perfect. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it can, if it's, if it's not a sufficiently complex personality test, it, it will probably do more harm than good. Um, I feel like there's so much nuance to, people's personalities. Um, I remember one time I was in an internship for uh, one of the companies that I had uh, been at in college, and they had put us into four different corners of the room based on a couple of personality questions. And I'm looking around, and I'm just in like the talkative category, I guess. Like it wasn't clear. (laughs) It was like these people just talk a lot and (laughs) <laughs> they don't have a clear skill so we we're putting them was in that this you, were you told that or did you assume that? i assumed it but it was okay. pretty clear it, it okay. was like 
it was weird. I was like, damn, I really want to be in the analytical category. You know what I mean? There's like, yeah. there's like high achievers. And I'm like in, in this other corner. I'm like, what? what, what? This is not a good corner. Um, I guess t- to be, and now that I'm thinking about it, it must be like the highly person to person roles, like a project manager or a product manager, any kind of like connecting role. It's probably great for and I'm sure that's probably what it was, but it came off the wrong way to me. And um, so I think it, it can kind of hurt if, if it's not really, you know, well, well designed. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. And it, it, your point is valid and fair. And, and to me, it's also the argument of people can, I mean, you can fake an answers on a personality test. You can't fake performance on the job or on a a test that's given to you in a controlled environment to test your skills right so that's another thing um to 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 keep in mind it's just and also the the interviews and the hiring process is stressful enough like you know having to worry about (laughs) your personality and the assessment of that is a is another i don't know to me it would be a stressor and it was in the past it's like to your point of kind of looking at people around you and saying, okay, what category am I in? It feels a bit uneasy. And I want to talk about once you get the role and maybe you're hybrid or in any kind of work setup, really, how would you, how do you achieve a work-life balance? So I, it's, I took a progressive or, uh, it's not, I don't think it's, you can find, maybe there are one-stop shop answers to this, but my personal approach, and I do think it's a personal journey. I think you can build programmatically at the enterprise level. You can build practices, rituals that facilitate work-life balance. Um, teams have rituals for that sometimes that help. But for me personally, it comes down to tuning in often and understanding my limits and understanding the signs that I need to recharge and becoming really good at that very quickly. Um, for me, a, a weirdly simple example is when I start slurring or I'm misspelling words or I'm sending the wrong thing to the wrong person or I'm saying the wrong, I'm switching words, as I'm communicating. That to me usually is a sign that I'm tired, right? But that took me years of listening to that. Sometimes you're going through it and you don't necessarily know how to correct it. But it took me years to learn that, okay, when these show up in your behavior, it's usually because you're tired, for example. And that's one thing is identifying, I call it your limits. You know, there might be other terms for it. But Identifying where your battery is low. The second part, which is more difficult, is taking action promptly to recharge. And everyone has a different way to recharge. It could be taking a walk, going to a boxing class, speaking to family, just breathing, meditation. People have so many different avenues that allow them to do that. But what was difficult for me is communicating it. Communicating in the moment, because we're all in hyper-productive environments, Communicating in the moment, I I just need some space 
so I can recharge. If you're lucky, for it could be vacation, right? You, you do get ample time to recharge and you actually get to plug, uh, turn off completely. But if you don't have vacation coming up or if you don't have the luxury of just taking a couple of days, taking moments or hours in your day and being able to communicate that I think is super important. I think companies can facilitate through programs, work-life balance and giving benefits and giving um, solid, having a solid vacation policy, all those things, right? But it's really up to the employee to want to take advantage of that, but to do the assessment of when and if they need to recharge. I wonder if you have an approach to work-life balance and, you know, recharging is one. Family time, for example, is another you know, aspect of work life balance. Okay, tell me what's your approach. I take fun very seriously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so everything is dialed up to a 10. You know, it's like, how do we make this as awesome as it can possibly be? Within, within So it's a balance. work hard, play hard yeah. situation. We got it. Definitely. That's how you achieve your balance. Okay. That's, exa- that's exactly it. <laughs> And, and also I think that the good thing about work uh, is it, it has every job has a seasonality to it where you will have certain periods where it is very, very busy. You're working every single day, morning to night, you have 10 things on your to-do list constantly. And it's just like a heck of a time. And then there's other periods where you like can kind of restructure the way you work or maybe one of your projects is finished and like you're in the beginning phases of something new and you have maybe more time. And I I just try to always identify that and stay grateful for it, grateful for the quiet periods. And it allows me to enjoy that time. And um, so staying grateful helps me because I don't lose battery as quickly. Um, and that's, that's just as important as recharging. And yeah, that's another big, big thing I do, which I'm not just now realizing. Do you have a go, go to way to recharge? Yes. What's your, what is it? It's garbage TV. So (laughs) we're talking the lowest of the low (laughs) dating shows. Oh, I love it. You know, I, I recently started watching court TV court courtroom TV or something like that on Hulu. It's just like, yeah, it's just like courtroom proceedings gone wrong and it's very cathartic. (laughs) It's just, it's just (laughs) fun. And, and, and it, it, the the whole, and actually it's funny right before this podcast, my friend calls me and I tell him, he's like, what are you going to do later? I'm like, I'm probably just going to watch this show. And he's like, why are you, you know, doing that? Why are you spending your time doing that? It's like, first of all, I, I don't do it all the time. Um, and it's your time. You do whatever yeah, you want. <laughs> I, do, I do it a lot, maybe an hour or two or three a night, you know, d- depending on what else. I often multitask. Um, and and that just really helps me because I can let go of everything that happened that day because the show is just so disconnected from my reality. And that that is very powerful um, in whatever form it comes in. And, and I'm, I'm oddly proud of that. Like I will even tell people at work if I'm watching like the bachelor and some, and I'll just give, I'm not afraid to give them updates. Cause it's just like, I, I think that 
I don't think it should be stigmatized. I don't think that like completely, you know, being a couch potato for a few hours is a bad thing. If you want to just relax and watch And TV. if it works, yeah, absolutely. And if it works for you, it works for you. And like I said, you know, that's important to me is just accepting that people have different ways to get to the same destination. In this case, recharging and being open-minded and being open to different approaches to that. That to me is, you know, common sense. And I love that you are now <laughs> going to catch me up <laughs> on all the TV. I, you know what? I don't watch that much TV, but I, I watch a lot of YouTube. YouTube nice. is how, yes. That's Sometimes great. going down the rabbit hole. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, is, that, is that what you do, you would say to recharge? Mm, no, I would like if it's, mm, mm, I would say a walk is how I primarily recharge. That's the best and fastest way for me to recharge a good, as long as it can be, uh, if I have the time, but a short one will also do is just a a good walk will help me recharge pretty quickly. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Exercise is very good for the mind. Yeah. And fresh air and just looking at, you know, it's, I think maybe what, I, I don't know, I haven't done research on this, but maybe just the shift of environment and the shift of focus um, and then the lack of, you know, you're in an environment where you're not required to think or to process. It's just, you're just experiencing it. Um, maybe that's what recharging is in, in different forms, but yes, walking really does work for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another thing that is just as important that I touch on is not draining your battery too quickly because you will, there is an, uh, there is a point at which it could be unsustainable to take off the time you need because maybe the position you're in is wrong for you and it just really is unsatisfying and maybe even like somewhat harmful for you to just be in that place. Um, and that is like, that is not a situation that any amount of recharging will help. It, it, it's just like yeah. a constant drain. <laughs> yeah. You know what's most difficult when you're in that situation is to solution. Because if you're burnt out and you're trying to solution for the burnout and for the work at the same time, it takes specific sets of skills to do that. One, it takes, like I said, awareness, reflection, like recognition that you're in a, in a bind and in, in, in a cycle that you need to get out of. Two, to identify that solution, it often involves asking for help. Um, And that's something that I've gotten better at throughout the course of my career. Um, I know, especially in the start, when you're you're joining from college or when you're in your early career, you really want to do it all. You want to learn it all. You don't necessarily want to acknowledge your your weaknesses or where you still need to learn. It's, it's easy to take a lot on. And I recognize this is a different scenario from um, maybe a more experienced hire where the role is just designed that way. But in both, or regardless of the case, I would say like being able to identify um, that you're overworked, close to burnout, but also seeking solutions and seeking help and not being afraid to say, you know, I need help. Who can support me in this? Who can, you know, help me find answers here? 
really identifying the source of the stress or the source of the um, the pain and then working backwards to find solutions is important. But it takes skill. It takes time. It's one of those things that you, I don't know, maybe others teach it, but it's part just experience and learning yourself and getting better at that, but also part getting better at taking action and recognizing the right course of action for a select type of stressor or a select type of um, difficulty. Not easy, I will say. <laughs> yeah, and, and on that note, do you have any books that you would recommend for yes. you know dealing with this? Yes, and I don't know if it would actually help with... Actually, I, I think it will. So it's called Atlas of the Heart by Brené Brown. And this is actually a book Simon recommended. And my own summary of it is that it helps you identify your own emotions and how you might react to them. And for me, that book really helps with the awareness stage. You might need other books to, to, to work on the action side of things. So once you've identified why am I upset, right? Like what's causing this upsetness or why am I feeling this emotion or why am I reacting a certain way or responding a certain way? Um, that awareness is super important and identifying your emotions as they're happening is super important. But there are also great books out there of how to redirect that for the better, how to redire redirect that emotion, negative emotion towards a solution and an action that can help you overcome whatever troubles uh, you're in at the moment. So Atlas of the Heart, if you're into behavioral um, behavioral topics of behavior, cognition, emotion, psychology, you'll like that one. That's something I really enjoy reading about <laughs> is just self-development overall. Thank you. That's a great recommendation. Can I, can I ask for yours? Do you have one that you... For a, would apply to the situation of, you know, overcoming a stressor yes. or, yeah, go ahead. So it's actually two books because they, it's a kind, after you get to the end of the first book, it tells you to read the second book. Um, <laughs> Very good marketing strategy. Genius. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the first book is called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it is all about mental toughness and how to strengthen your mind. And the second one is called Feeling Good by David Burns. And, oh, and the first one was by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, and then Greg Lukianoff. And the second one is Feeling Good by David Burns. And uh, the subtitle is The New Mood Therapy. So it goes into cognitive behavioral theory and that's the core of, you know, it's kind of explaining it, you know, in layman's terms and something that anybody can understand and apply to their own life. Um, so those books I've, I found to be the most transformational for me from an emotional perspective. But I agree with you um, that life is the best teacher of these skills and that if you're going through a hard time, then that makes you human because everybody goes through hard times. And so, you know, every, and everybody has to learn on their own how to deal with those feelings. 
Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm grateful for podcasts like yours where people can find actual tools, you know, because sometimes you, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to know the pathway to resolution. And, you know, in the era of the internet, there's a lot of answers out there. But if you can relate to people who are telling you how they've done it, I think that's a good way to go about it. So I'm grateful for this podcast. Thank you, Jen. And I'm grateful for you. I'm so glad that you came on. My pleasure. Anytime. We'll have you on again. So I think this is a good stopping point. I want to thank you, Jen, for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Alrighty. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.